Hi, thank you for checking out The Metamystic. This podcast is a place where metaphysics and mysticism blend to create reality and how this information can help us transcend our current human consciousness into one that promotes universal love and acceptance for all. This podcast is intended to be a safe place for people wanting to ask deeper questions about the multifaceted and multidimensionality of our realities. It's for people who want to share their extraordinary experiences and exceptional encounters. It's a podcast for people who care about the conservation of Earth and protecting its animal, plant, and human species. It's for people who care about social justice and art and elevating the voices of others that may not look like them. It is for the seekers and for anyone who has an open heart and mind to ideas you may not have heard before or may even challenge some ideas you already hold. It is my hope that in exploring the topics presented in this podcast, you will gain a broader understanding of how we are all wonderfully connected to each other, the universe, and far more than we ever expected. What's up, y'all? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Metamystic. This episode is a continuation of The Great Awakening. And in this episode, we will primarily focus on the racial justice movements of 2020 and, and reflecting on George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the other beautiful lives that have been taken due to police violence. And all of this comes back to the topic of human consciousness and expanding our present realities. And some of the events that I will be discussing figure prominently in this whole podcast coming into being and, and radically reshaped our society and so many people around the world. And it also had a hugely profound effect on me and the creation of this podcast and everything that came since. My life just says the world and so many other people would never be the same. And just like so many others at protests around the country and the world, we had no idea what was about to come. Now let's dive into the metamystic. Within the backdrop of a global pandemic, the death of George Floyd had sparked the tinderbox of inequality and systemic oppression 
of the black communities that had been going on since 1619 and being meted out by police and policies to this very day, much has been discussed about the heartbreaking tragedy of George's death three years ago and Brianna's, as well as so many other innocent black lives. There are hundreds of books and TV specials and conversations and podcasts talking about these important issues, and they need to keep happening. For the purpose of this episode, I will be offering a first-person account of what took place the night everything changed in Portland, Oregon. It was May 28, 2020. Four days after George's murder by police marked the first night of Portland's George Floyd Memorial, which was held at the Peninsula Park and International Rose Testing Garden in Portland, Oregon. The beautiful park is adorned with hundreds and hundreds of gorgeous rose bushes in all colors and varieties. The heavenly sceneries and scents seemed a befitting location to mourn the loss of George Floyd's life and a rose garden full of precious petals and solidarity. The thorns were also out that night. Thousands were gathered in appropriately socially distanced solidarity with the black community in Portland, mourning George's murder and everything that event collectively represented by centuries of police and government brutality to the beautiful and brilliant BIPOC populations and individuals of this country. We were listening to black members of the community speaking from a mic and speaker in the pavilion that demarcates the center of the park. People were telling the stories of abuse, oppression, and violence they had experienced as being a black person or person of color in Portland, Oregon. most surprising moments for me was an older black woman from Alabama who took the stand. She explained that living in the South most of her life, she wanted to start a new life in a liberal city, which I think is a similar sentiment for many of us West Coast transplants who have moved to this side of the country, hoping to start a new change in a place where they can actually be free. Portland has become a liberal bastion a safe haven for many in the queer and BIPOC communities and safe for women. What most people don't know upon moving to Portland, what I didn't know before moving there, was that Portland and Seattle are the liberal outliers in the supposedly diehard blue states of Washington and Oregon. 
I also didn't know the historical racism in the Pacific Northwest. What I didn't know was that Portland and Oregon are so predominantly white due to the state laws denying entry or citizenship of black people until recently. These laws were only overturned in 1973. The amount of white lives matter people in the PNW was prevalent yet secretive, passively aggressive, sometimes aggressive aggressive, and also in denial. I moved to Portland in March of 2019 and was getting my life back together after publishing my first book, overcoming the ensuing personal consequences, both good and not so good, and coming to terms with a brand spanking new mental health diagnosis, all of which doesn't sound very sexy on a dating app. But to me, Portland was a dream come true city and the start of a beautiful next chance to play in the mountains and go skiing after work. I had done some research about the state and its demographics before moving there. I was shocked when I learned the racist history of Oregon's not-so-recent past, and I had learned it only about a month before the quarantines began. It was the last thing the woman born in Alabama said that has stuck with me ever since. She said, If I had known how covertly racist it was in the Pacific Northwest, I would have stayed in the overtly racist South, because at least then you know what to expect. But of course, this systemic racism wasn't happening in the city of Portland, right? Portland was woke and green and weed-friendly and queer-loving and was making up for the decades of inequality to minority populations. The racism and police brutality was only happening in those predominantly white surrounding areas of the PNW and in the south of the country, right? Her words were very prescient, for in the ensuing weeks to come, the world would see the true colors of the Portland government bleed their milky white-born pedigree. The chance for people of color to speak about their experiences in public was important to grieving George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Audrey, Trayvon Martin, and all the other black lives lost before and before and before and since. White folk needed to hear BIPOC voices and believe their experiences. Everyone who was there that night seemed to echo support and validation for each speaker. One of the leaders of the black community said that we needed to take these grievances collectively to City Hall and that we would be marching there this evening. He invited everyone to join with the black community in solidarity to protest police brutality because, as he said, a white cause problem needs other white people to take accountability and create change in those demographics. There was another sad truth I later found out 
that white allies were also needed to protect black protesters from other white people and the police. One of my good friends, Stormy, texted me a picture of spray-painted A with a circle around it, and it said, Antifa is here. I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but it sounded like some badasses were not ready to make nice with the government. Keep on rocking that boat, y'all. As the vigils came to a close, the group of friends I came with said they were leaving and asked if I was going to leave as well. I paused for a second. Not because I didn't know what my plan was. I did. I told them I was staying, that this moment was so much bigger than all of us, and I felt I needed to be there to support the black community. I paused because I was surprised and disappointed for that group of white people, of social workers and counselors, to go home with a feeling full and have no action to back it up. As they and others said their goodbyes, Members of an indigenous tribe brought out their drums and led us in chants and dances of protection. There were also chants of war cry, girding us up against the forces of militant oppression we would unknowingly contend with later that evening. The honorific first night of George Floyd's vigil evolved into the electrifying night of one of the now legendary and monumentally important Portland Black Lives Matter protest. The protest march grew organically. People began marching from the park, singing songs and chants. And I remember having this visual of all of these different streams of people moving and coalescing into one large river of justice and cries for equality, and it was one of the most moving things I'd ever witnessed. There were some community leaders who had planned to march to City Hall prior to the vigil, but I don't think anyone had an idea what an impact several thousand people unified in the name of social justice and frustration with systemic inequality would have had that evening and months to come. That night was the first time I had heard all cops or bastards, ACAB, being chanted by hundreds if not thousands of people. Though I was no lover of the police, I had sort of formed a working relationship with law enforcement due to my career as a social worker. Social workers often work cases with law enforcement for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they call us, sometimes we call them, I tried to use law enforcement as infrequently as possible during my social work days and for many reasons. Chiefly the fact that it seemed unnecessary to bring backup for most of these situations. And I think a lot of people have a misunderstanding of what social work is and working for the government as a social worker. Out of the hundreds of cases that are called in and screened through to investigators, 
about 50% of those cases, nothing was going on. And most of them were just people who might need some help or government resources or someone to watch their kids. Additionally, social workers, additionally, social workers walk into sometimes very unsafe situations and unprotected without even being able to carry mace. During that time, there were months of discussion about police brutality, and it was a reckoning that needed to happen a long time ago. So I did research and read books and listened to black friends in the community and was there with people trying to make a change in the way that we were doing things in this country. And it was fucking awesome. It was so empowering and beautiful to see people just motivated and revved up for change. It felt like this phenomenon would go on forever, but this was just the first night. I think that's another reason I personally was angry at police for the million of other injustices and reasons to be angry, but because social workers walk into so many strange houses and diffuse the most messed up situations without the threat of violence or use of force. These types of interactions of aggression perpetrated by police put clients immediately on the defense and scare kids and make tensions rise in already very tense situations. As I said earlier, over half of the CPS investigations I worked as a social worker were bogus or flat out nothing was going on. Some were called in by judgmental white nurses and teachers or angry paramours. Most of these lower level cases were of minimal risk or where people who just needed resources, people who just needed help to provide for themselves and their families or have somebody responsible watch their kids while they work a 20-hour shift that day. About 20% of the cases were founded for neglect or abuse and most of those involved domestic violence or substance abuse and not necessarily abuse to the children. The most violent and abusive situations were probably about two to three, maybe even 5%. What I discovered as a social worker was that people needed access to their basic needs, diapers for their children, family community support, and free daycare. Most of the sexual or physical abuse cases could have declined were the mom's boyfriends, I'm sorry guys, not the ones who had to watch their girlfriend's kids. There are plenty of boyfriends of women with children who are amazing and would never do anything to harm them, but some of the bad cases may have never been called in if the mother had someone to watch them and maybe somebody of better quality to be in love with. It was never easy to remove a child from a family situation. As a client advocate, I would always look for any other option before pulling that trigger. Even though it was profoundly difficult for parents and children to be separated, skilled social workers were usually able to come to an agreement or understanding with the parents and place the children in protective custody without violence. If we can safely remove a child from their home in sometimes chaotic and sad and hostile circumstances without the need for law enforcement, then how can 
law enforcement kill people for flinching or for walking down the street with a hoodie or driving down the street or even opening the door to their own home or even sleeping in their own bed and murdered and taken down simply for the color of their skin. There is power in numbers. There is importance in taking it to the streets. Even though I was a newcomer to Portland, even though we were all in masks, it felt like we owned the city that night and for many nights to come, and in some ways we really did. One life is precious. One life is precious. And we're seeing hundreds and thousands taken away senselessly. Are we going to keep letting that shit happen? No. Are we going to get justice? Yes. Are we going to get justice? Yes. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No racist, police. No justice, no peace. No racist, police. No justice, no peace. No racist, police. It felt like we were doing something important. It felt like we were helping to create change. Most people were in good spirits despite the egregious reasons we were protesting. There were chant leaders giving directions on how to protest. People came with mutual aid, snacks, first aid, e even giving us instructions on what to do if police came out and if we were to get arrested. Walk, don't run was one of the most important chants I learned that night. I didn't expect that I would be saying it several times later that evening. The mood became more serious as we moved closer to downtown. The anger had been building on the way. People became more incensed against police violence towards black individuals, as well as capitalist systems and corporations that were all profiting off the backs of the human race without any accountability. Although I ended up being in the protest without anyone I knew, no one is alone in a protest. When we made our winding way to City Hall, and into the Portland Police Bureau, it was the first time I had been there. I had lived in Portland a year at that point, but had never any reason or desire to frequent that location. It would become a place so many of us would later come to protest more times than we ever care to imagine and can never forget. There were instances of vandalism against larger departments, storefronts, and corporations. I'm not going to lie, it was a bit shocking to witness, and there did seemed to be some people who may have planned to vandalize, but that was maybe 5%, 3% out of the 95% or more protesters who were marching in solidarity with the black community that night and in future demonstrations and doing it peaceably and responsibly and with care for their fellow human beings. Smash glass christening new momentum in revolutionary justice for the BIPOC communities was also really inspiring. The calls to dismantling systemic abuse and police corruption bellowed spontaneously en masse in Portland, in Ferguson, Kenosha, Minneapolis, Atlanta, and all around the world. The unleashing of generational cries, the ancestors coming forward within us all to defend one another and those of the most vulnerable and beautiful of our population. That's why we are here. But 
But it keeps going. He made this platform. He made this platform. We know that. It's about going further down, y'all. I ended up being about the middle back of the protest by the time we wound our way downtown. So by this time, and soon after arriving, I heard glass shattering and saw people walking into the lobby of the PPB, the Portland Police Bureau. And then shortly after, there was a fire blazing. It was surreal to witness. I took video footage because it seemed important to document what was happening, to one day share it with the world, and maybe to prove to myself that this actually happened. A girl next to me screamed out. She was also there alone and asked if we could march together. I told her, of course. I was actually also really thankful to have someone there with me too. The police came out much later than I would have expected. But when they did, man, they came out with a flash and a bang and by the hundreds and armed with tear gas and guns, a man on a loudspeaker demanded us to move out and go home. There was no conversation, no accountability with law enforcement, only immediate and direct commands to disperse and go home. It was absolutely stunning to see the flash bangs and hear that loud deafening sound as hundreds and thousands of people moved through clouds of tear gas billowing out and clinging to the trees and in our nostrils and our hair and our eyes because many of us didn't know what to expect that night and didn't come prepared. It was a godsend to have our mask at that point. I think a lot of people may have been a lot more affected had we not had these masks to protect us from the violence being shot upon us with rubber bullets and tear gas and no accountability and no love by the police. After the first flashbangs went off, I remember seeing a few people turn back in terror and I calmly and confidently said, walk, don't run, walk, don't run. I just remember repeating that simple yet important refrain over and over until I was sure that we would all be safe as we exited this precarious situation together. The brutality and systems of oppression we were experiencing and witnessing were the same types I had been trying to wake people up to after my tenure as a social worker. This is why I wrote my book, and now people are actually taking it to the streets and sticking it to the fucking man. My matchbook had been open metaphorically and literally for several years, and now after this, after witnessing everything that had taken place before and during that protest, and my matchbook was fully ablaze. Like many of those who were protesting all over the country, I had been to other protests. I went during the Occupy Wall Street movement in Atlanta for women's productive rights, for gay rights, for the environment. But I had never been to a protest like this and never attacked by police. Maybe it was different this time and for a lot of reasons. Maybe one of the reasons it was different is because in 
former demonstrations, the police themselves weren't being protested. Maybe it was because black people and their allies were standing up for black liberation and in an attempt to erode the white supremacy deeply entrenched in the fabric of the American flag. But how can you successfully protest police when they are the ones who also enforce lethal force just for protesting them? How can people be free when police are allowed to be the judge, jury, and literal executioner of its populace? How can black and brown people feel safe when they are the ones being targeted? It, it bends the mind that the ones you are protesting are the ones who can arrest you just for protesting them. Where is the justice in any of that? Who are the government officials ensuring the First Amendment rights are being upheld? Another chant that would come to define our protest were when we would ask the police, who do you protect? Who do you serve? And there never came a response or an answer because there was never any accountability. Why are police so diametrically opposed to the will, to the good of the people? When we chanted, who do you serve? Who do you protect? Tear gas and rubber bullets was the answer that was given. Yes, the vandalism and the fire starting may have been problematic, but as MLK said, a riot is the language of the unheard. I wouldn't consider that night to have been a riot because that term represents lawlessness for the sake of lawlessness. Maybe there was some of that happening, but that belies the whole reason why people were there, because the state had killed yet another black man, and the world saw it, and nothing was being done about it, as Derek Chauvin's knee went into George Floyd's neck. In criminal law, gatherings are considered a riot if offense is caused against public order by three or more people. So with that reasoning, what do you call the gathering of police officers who brutalize the people they are sworn to protect or the people that they lynch, cover it up, and shield their own from any accountability or responsibility? How about you call them a litter of pigs, a quiver of cobras, a gang of weasels, a group of adult bullies? How about a police union. I have always been a supporter for BIPOC rights and believe in equality and equity for women, LGBTQIA+, two-spirit youth and individuals and all people. We've always known it was there and have heard about government corruption, but this was the first time I had witnessed such a mockery of justice on this large of a scale and out for everyone to see and they didn't care. After that night, I knew there was no turning back. I was protesting the very government I worked for. I was decrying the same law enforcement agencies and government systems I was working with as a social worker. What's more, I remember thinking that there should have been more social workers and teachers protesting there in the streets because other than the police, social workers may be the only other people in the community who have the ability to give people access to 
damn their lives or help them thrive. After that night, the nation and the city would never be the same, and that was a good thing. I also thought the same for myself, and though I did change and grow and swore myself to abolition, it would be a different night three weeks later when my life and everything I knew about reality would change forever. So thank you for taking time to listen to this podcast episode today. I hope, as always, that there is good information in here for you to think and reflect and maybe motivate or even inspire you. So if you have any ideas or comments or things you'd like to share or talk with me more about, please feel free to send me an email at themetamystic at gmail.com or follow me on social media at jdkatena, that's K-H-A-T-E-N-A on Instagram, or you can follow us on IG at The Metamystic. Thank you again, and I hope each one of you has an amazing week and you continue to thrive. If you have found this show helpful, please let a friend know, and a five-star review would be so helpful in getting this information out there to more people so we can individually reach out to one another. And the more that we keep doing that, the more we will find that change be the change that we want to see in the world. My heart feels full and open, and I hope that it does for you. It's been wonderful to share this information. I hope it's been helpful, and I just want to say thank you one more time. Have a great day, and I'll see you next time.